Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely, this is the podcast, and the friends will be along shortly. It's been a great week for me. Has it been a good week for you? I've run about 40 miles this week, and it hasn't rained at all, so I've gotten to run dry, as uh, as I guess you could say. It's uh, it's It's been really cold, but it's been dry. Uh, let's see, pop culture. Um, I saw the first episode of His Dark Materials. I watched it twice, actually, because I watched it with two different friends, and I really like it. Between that Watchmen and Silicon Valley, I think HBO is more than earning my subscription dollars. Uh, pretty soon, it's going to be HBO Max. For some reason, when I say that, I picture two X's in my head. It's... Is that is that weird? I, I, anyway, there. I've commented on something in the current zeitgeist. Now let us speak of it no more. Anyway, uh, let's do the show. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less, including these 11. Who imposed this rule? Wait, th- is this a side count? I... Fiddlesticks! The First Law Trilogy by Joe Abercrombie. This trio of books is the story A Song of Ice and Fire thinks it is. Complex, deeply realized world full of characters to match. The charm of these books, beyond their sweeping scope, dead-on humor, and frightening descriptions of magical power, is the utter irredeemability of any of the characters. I mean it. Nobody in these stories is a good guy. And yet, you find yourself being able to understand the circumstances and stories they tell themselves which lead them to take the actions that they do. Well, Asiaoif has some shining moments of suddenly making villains point-of-view characters, this book provides no clear villains. To be sure, there are antagonistic forces marshalling beyond the border of the mortal world and all of that, but in the end, the characters end up being defeated by their own actions. I've not even mentioned the descriptions of combat, rendered so visceral that they make me shudder to think of ever having to fight someone with a sword, let alone a bunch of them. Go read these. This is my chat with my dear friend Kate Steensma. She was actually the guest on the very first episode of the podcast way back when I did the very first episode. I never released the very first episode of the podcast out to the wider podcast feed. It was something that was only on Patreon as I was sort of figuring out what the podcast was going to be and how it was going to work. So if you want to hear that interview with Kate, it's up on Patreon. So without further ado, here's my chat with Kate Steensma. I came all the way back here just for this. Just for this podcast? All the way from Wisconsin. And also I came here because I live here and I wanted to get out of Hoth. Hoth? So... Wisconsin is basically hot. Is that what you're saying? Right now. I mean, even the, my friends who I was staying with were like, this is January weather. Yeah. And we're used to hot in January, but not in the beginning of November. Yeah, it's, th- that's a wild thing about 
like climate change is that people are kind of thinking about like well the planet's getting warmer or whatever but that doesn't mean that we're not also going to get like all this extreme weather like the fact that it's been snowpocalypse the last three winters in north america yeah polar vortex um jim my friend who i was staying with he was like so i guess we just get polar vortex every year now and i was telling him how this summer 2019 in the pacific northwest is like the first one in three years i think that we haven't had um like wildfire smoke do you remember the last two august oh yeah or this year horrible. Just smoke all the time couldn't go running people are wearing masks yeah the masks, the good masks all sold out, so we just had to get the crappy ones. It's it's wild what can become the new normal and how quickly people can adjust to it. Mm -hmm. So, were you in Wisconsin for work just now? Yes, I was. We had a training this week. Um, and we went to visit a couple of dairy farms out there. One of which was Horde's Dairy Farm, which, does that mean anything to you? No, what, tell me what Horde's so, is. So, there is this magazine called the hordes dairyman uh -huh. that has been running for like since i think the 1800s it was a paper maybe back then i should have paid more attention on the tour um but it's like this iconic magazine that my dad gets like issues of it every month uh -huh. and i grew up like looking at it and every year they have like all the top um like the winners of each cattle breed in like all the cattle shows are on the cover of it kind of uh -huh. like cover girls um <laughs> so amazing. yeah they actually have a, a dairy farm in wisconsin so we got to go see it and um and take a look because they're using our robots to milk their cows now that's so cool so just to just to catch up listeners who may not have heard your last appearance on the podcast episode zero that's right you were on the secret patreon only episode <laughs> you you are employed by a company that sells robots that milk cows yeah um my title changes all the time i just go with digital cattle wrangler <laughs> that, which is like that's a job that didn't even exist like 30 years ago yeah, it's, there were people 30, maybe 20 years ago, 25 years ago, people were writing, starting to write early versions of software to track cow records, uh -huh. but they're, I mean, just like any other software or computers or technology, they've come light years to today. The reason I was late is because I was at home remotely connected to a farm on the east coast who just started up robotic milkers and rightfully so on a friday evening all of my colleagues on the east coast are doing friday evening things uh -huh. so i hopped on to help them double check a cow who was like going to the robot and it was milking her again even though she had just been milked recently so right. she wasn't due for milking so just a little bit of troubleshooting um yeah because like You've told me about this before, but the cows get a treat after they get milked, right? Like, there's, like, a little shoot that gives them some alfalfa pellets It's actually, or while they're getting milked, um, they'll get pellets. Not alfalfa pellets, but, um, yeah, concentrate pellets, which can include any number of grains so maybe the, ingredients. So maybe the cows were, like, swapping uh, their RFID chips so she could, like, go back. She's like, I want to get some more of those. Yeah. Those grains. There actually was a pretty funny one. It wasn't... Um, 
Well, there was one recently in a robot that I heard about where the cow had swallowed an RFID chip that had fallen off or I think it had fallen off another cow and fell into their feed area and she swallowed it and she also was wearing her normal RFID chip which is usually in the left ear uh -huh. and because cows like giant stomach the rumen right. is so huge um, the RFID chip just settled down to the bottom of it uh -huh. and so then when she was walking into the robot it was confused because it's like there's two cows in here and one of them is unrecognized <laughs> so we basically had to tell the system that there was another cow who was a non-milk cow and was just like a cow who was allowed to come and get grain but not get milked um, in order to override like it's, it was just our weird workaround and way of making the robot understand how to work with a biological organism. <laughs> Ghost cow in the machine. Yeah. That is so fascinating. Just, I, I know it's what you do every day, but this is, it kind of ties into something I've been thinking about a lot lately, that I don't have a hobby. I don't have anything that I pour interest and time into that is not somehow related to the things I spend my life doing. So I make art, I do this podcast, and on this podcast, I talk about art and creativity and performance and everything like that. So even the books I read and the movies I watch become fodder for talking about on this show. Like on this week's episode, I'm talking about three or four books I've read this year and kind of how they all have similarities. And I think that's one of the reasons I love having guests like you on this podcast, because you spend so much of your time in this world that is complete science fiction to me. And yet it's just your day to day. Like, you know, I was mentioning that thing about how people can very quickly adapt to a new normal. And it's one of my favorite things in like science fiction or fantasy books that like, you know, there's like a dragon coming out of a portal and there's some guy who's like, ah, the dragon portal's open again. I gotta go, gotta go close that. <laughs> like in the same way that you and I would be like, ugh crap, gotta get out of bed and take out the recycling before I fall asleep. You know, it's just like, it's just another thing. And for you, it's like, oh man, a cow swallowed the RFID chip, and now we have to trick the robot into thinking that the ghost cow is just, is, is allowed. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you, what do you do when you are not ghost cow wrangling? Yeah. Yoga. Yoga. is a big thing for me as my classic millennial white girl wearing yoga pants image today would uh, suggest. But yeah, I'm headed to a yoga class after this and hopefully it'll be a good way of wiping the database of the week. Yeah. <laughs> Starting fresh for the weekend, yeah. What, what is your take on the current state of yoga? Because I know you're certified to teach and in the age of Me Too, yoga is like this Yoga is having kind of a reckoning, at least according to the New York Times. It seems like yoga is on the front page of the New York Times every couple of weeks because some instructor was being too hands-on. And yet I feel like the discipline is kind of about that hands-on, like it's like a touch-oriented thing. What is your take on that? How do you feel about that sort of hands-on instruction kind of thing? Um, I think it can be really valuable. Um, a lot of people who come to take a yoga class 
may have no other human contact or like experience of physical touch anywhere else in their life um, and in a safe space and the right context human touch is so valuable I mean you know when you're raising babies like the more you touch them the more it helps their um, Mm -hmm. brain development Um, but obviously it has to have consent Um, and that's something that's really important for me and that all of the best yoga instructors that I know and respect uh, value as well so a really important thing for me when I'm looking for a teacher or a yoga studio who I want to support and um, practice at um, as well as when I'm teaching myself is asking for consent at the top of class so I will always open class um, when people either students either have their eyes closed or are in a face down position so it's private and a safe space nobody has to worry about someone else judging them I will say I'm gonna offer hands-on assisting today which means I might come around and touch you if you want to opt out raise your hand now and I'll respect your space or something along those lines Um, and I I think all of the best yoga teachers do that Um, Mm. But even after that has been established, yes, there's still risk for maybe a student like or being feeling uncomfortable or a teacher who's not experienced or maybe makes a mistake um, causing a student to feel uncomfortable. And that's that's a big challenge. Um, But for me, I just... A, ask for that consent from my students first, and then even after that, if I'm not feeling right or the energy isn't right, I just give students their space. Um, And really, I usually try to wait until I know a student. They've come to my class a couple times. We've talked outside of class before or after, um, before I'll give them hands-on assists but there's also workshops I've gone to too as far as like training safe assists how not to be creepy Mm -hmm. um but yeah that's really important because it's a very vulnerable vulnerable space to to be in yoga class and you you want it to be safe definitely you bring up a really interesting point about the fact that it's not just about that one question but it's sort of this ongoing conversation I think it's really fascinating that a lot of the things people are saying, you know, as the culture more broadly is discovering consent, because we're now talking about the people who really messed up or who were repeatedly violating it. But people talk about like, you have to obtain it and then you have to maintain it. But I think one of the critical aspects of maintaining it between two people is that sometimes someone will cross a line. Mm -hmm. And part of, I think good consent is, having the communication and the listening open that if someone does cross a line, they can be informed and they can step back across, you know, that they, they can go back. Mm-hmm. And sometimes crossing a line, yeah, you've got to pump the brakes and the, the fun stops or the yoga lesson stops or whatever. But at the same time, I think that ongoing dialogue and learning about those boundaries, not, not deliberately, te- you know, not deliberately pushing people's boundaries, but being aware that, 
it's not, you know, boundaries aren't a single straight line in the sand. It's a squiggly line and different people have different squiggly lines and learning to be sensitive to that line, but also being willing to admit that you're wrong if your sensitivity is off. It's something that I have a lot with audiences at live shows. I just emceed a show a couple weeks ago where the audience was really game to play and they felt really excited and I kept creating opportunities for them to get wilder and they did. And like at one point I had a, a guy, I was, I did a, I do this joke where I touch my beard to another bearded man's beard in the audience. And I say something like if two beards touch somewhere in the world, a fraggle will be born. And we're doing that. And he's like, he, he spontaneously hugged me while we were touching each other's beards. And the crowd is loving it because it was like he was really into the moment. And I was like, I just kind of went for this moment of, and sometimes somewhere out in the audience elsewhere, another beard appears. And all the way across the room, this guy came running and like touched his beard to our beards. <laughs> and, and maintaining that spontaneity and excitement while still being very aware of these two guys and paying attention and then asking them like, is this okay? Like you good with this? And, and leading them into a place where there's an ability for them to do a thing. Not saying, you shall touch your beard to my beard now, but being like, what if our beards t t were to touch, you know, and you sort of create a space that allows a thing to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think it's similar with what you're talking about with yoga, that you've, you've opened up the space to hands-on and you've offered to provide hands-on, but it doesn't mean if you're in my class, I'm going to touch you. Yes. It's, I may touch you if you need it, if you want it. And it's just, it's a, it's an entirely different set of steps leading to being touched as opposed to, I don't know, when you're at the doctor's office and it's like, turn your head and cough. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what your equivalent of turn your head and cough would be, but it's, it's sort of like there's, if you start thinking about having that kind of experience in the rest of life, it's horrible. And I think it's really, really valuable to hear that someone who is teaching yoga and a part of yoga is thinking about this. Yeah, that's a great point. And I guess another thing um, that I have seen other yoga teachers do and that I've done is if I really have a good rapport with a student who's a regular or something, um, just checking in with them at the beginning of class, uh, like, hey, is there anywhere like in your body where you feel like you might need a little bit of extra attention today that I can work on in the sequence and um, I have had students specifically ask me oh like could you give me an assist in half pigeon pose that's mm -hmm. a favorite one to get an assist in um, or after class touching base to hey how did you like that assist in half pigeon could it have used more pressure how was it for you just to kind of have an open-ended question to see what their experience was and they may try to if they were uncomfortable just say oh yeah it was fine or oh that was great but you can kind of read tone and that's a good way to just get feedback but for the most part students if you have a good relationship with them they'll give honest feedback mm -hmm. yeah and that, that thing you just mentioned about a good relationship, you know, in conversations like this or talking about race or gender or whatever, there's a tendency for people who are 
not as on board the the hype train to Wokeville to view conversations and settings like this as being like too PC or too careful and 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 kind of being like killjoys and I that has not been my experience that these conversations or these moments are killjoys I think they're actually they're great and they're not as clinical as they sound when you're talking about them hypothetically because as you said among friends or among students who have a good rapport or or groups of people who have built relationships there's things that are understood there are things that are communicated it's not like every single moment you're like my hands are now six inches from your hips now they're three inches from your hips now I'm touching your hips like no one would do that you would sound like a crazy person yeah it's just about you know it's like you've established that we have this rapport and this tone and and we communicate along these lines yeah absolutely and that you're comment about narrating my hands or x inches from your hips or whatever we wouldn't do that but um one thing that yoga teachers do usually try to do if you are approaching a student's space and i guess always if you're about to give them a hands-on assist what i try to do is rub my hands together it sounds weird uh -huh. like ooh, i'm rubbing my hands together all creepy but really just like a to warm my hands up mm -hmm. and also to make a bit of a noise like this so that they hear oh the teacher is like right. right here so that i don't catch them off guard if they were looking the other way or i was outside of their view but also trying to approach them from within their view if possible so they aren't just like oh there's a, a hand on my back and i'm fine with that but i didn't know it was going to be there right now yeah um yeah so there's a lot of technique behind it to make sure it's a safe and, and elevating experience to their yoga practice. It's, yeah, it's absolutely like if I had my eyes closed and you said, I'm going to touch you at some point in the next five minutes, I would be so uncomfortable. <laughs> that would be the worst feeling. Oh my goodness. Well, luckily for me, even though I'm a yoga teacher, I'm not the most like graceful in my movements i i'm known to be a little bit clumsy uh -huh. <laughs> in times past um i try not to kick over water bottles when i'm teaching but i do i think make enough noise just in naturally walking around a room that hopefully that helps too <laughs> yeah it's also something that i think embracing that humanity i've i've taken a few yoga classes where the teacher is really leaning into some sort of like spiritual guide kind of sanastiti he ch chimichanga like chaturanga chaturanga kind of thing you know where they're like it's like really this like they're taking you on the spiritual journey and i'm like this room is 110 degrees we're all sweating our balls <laughs> off and like i farted three times this is not a spiritual experience for me this is a very physical and intensely like there is emotion in that, and I guess that is kind of, to be that in your body, it is spiritual, but to embrace the humanity of that, of that kind of activity, that kind of moment. And that's something that in the, the few times I've done yoga when you've been instructing, you're very human and down to earth about it. It's like, we're all just in our bodies, and like, this is a very human experience. In the same, and I, I feel it's kind of similar to 
the difference between just going to somewhere like an outback steakhouse or whatever with your family <laughs> as opposed to going to like a hot cuisine like French restaurant where like they bring you like tiny forks and everything's like plated a certain way. You know you know what I mean? That difference where it's just like we're humans and we're eating. Like why why do you have to make this this thing when it's 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 all gonna be poop. So, like, why not embrace the humanity of it? That is a great mantra. It's all going to be poop. Embrace the humanity of it. I think yoga is, like, <laughs> I appreciate what you're saying. Because for me, yeah, yoga is a very physical experience. But it also is a an emotional experience and spiritual to a degree, whatever that means, to each person who practices. So the beautiful thing about yoga is you can take whatever you need from it. So for some people it's hundred percent physical. I'm here for a workout done. And for other people, it can be very spiritually enlightening and, um, important to someone in that way, maybe even more so than a physical practice. So it's yoga is what you make it. I can't think of a better note to end on. We ended up talking about yoga today, but, that was great. Thank you so much for stopping by the studio to chat. Thank you for chatting with me. Namaste. <laughs> that was my chat with Kate Steensma. She's just a lovely and delightful human. If you want to know more about Kate, you can follow her on Instagram at tunicata. That's T-U-N-I-K-A-T-J-A. She posts a lot of really great nature photos that she takes in her travels, along with quotes by people like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Thoreau. It's just a nice, fun thing to follow. And you can also follow at steensma.dairy, S-T-E-E-N-S-M-A dot dairy, to find out about Kate's side hustle with the cows. Here's a thought. Why do we equate grim with artistic merit? At the beginning of 2019, I made a pledge to myself. I would read a book a week for the entire year. Now, at quarter past November, I'm looking back over the list of books I've read and noticed something. Because of my resolution, I've read more books than my usual 20 to 30 in most years. This expanded roster has opened up space for books that were outside of my regular interests or sometimes something that had been on the shelf for years that I'd been meaning to get to. We all have those books, something that we've heard is good, acclaimed, or perhaps just looks like something we should read. Confession, I finally got around to reading Accordion Crimes this year. Hilarious, I know, since I've been gifted not one, but half a dozen copies by fans and friends over the years. It's almost as if people think I'm guilty of something. Speaking of accordion crimes, it falls into the specific category of books I've been mulling on. A book in which everything is depressing. All the time. Nobody is ever happy and their life is ever so sad. Now don't get me wrong, I don't have any problem with a story that has a downer ending or a string of bad fortune for a character. It's just the fact that I find it difficult to believe that things are always getting worse. All the time. I mean... If you want to read a real-life version of such a narrative, you need look no further than Eugenia Ginsburg's Into the Whirlwind. The story is literally a descent into the soul-crushing alternative world that is the Soviet gulag archipelago. 
In spite of all of this real-life difficulty, Ginsburg still manages to not be as much of a downer as, say, Accordion Crimes or Suicide Blonde by Darcy Steinke. Many of you listeners have probably read the kind of novel I'm talking about, one in which unbearably grim things keep happening. I keep wanting to say grim, like my friends in Scotland. Where prostitutes rub shoulders with broken women and people interrupt conversations about the weather to say things like, That was when I noticed that my father had been blowing his nose with my school jumper every morning before he laid it out for me to wear that day. Sudden confessions of dark pasts, abuse, and illicit desires fulfilled or longed for. We've all encountered a piece of art written by a young person, a play or a poem rife with curse words to the point of self-parody. This young creative has consumed large amounts of adult content without understanding the depth of the emotion and feeling that pushes people to utter dirty words like fuck or cocksucker or coke zero. They know there is power in these words, but they do not understand that the source of the power is not the words themselves. A similar thing feels like it's happening with some of these novels. The writer, a comfortable and well-off individual who lives in a nice home and is supported by a grant or the residuals from previous sales, decides to go on a bender into Sadness Town. It almost feels like a kind of poverty tourism? That's a loaded term, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Uh, wallowing in an imagined squalor among exploited angels and perverted petty tyrants. Can writers write about things they have not specifically experienced? Of course they can. Let's not get silly, but I think it's very difficult. And it's almost impossible to do it in such a way that a person who has actually experienced such a thing would look at the work and see something of themselves in it. Just listen to my blistering takedown of that horrendous pile of fire starters Sarah Groon calls water for elephants. I hate that freaking book. I just don't. I can't. I barely can. It's just not kind of a... Sorry. This tendency to fixate on the imagined struggles of people lost in the darkness or whatever is all the more infuriating because of the way literary society seems to reward it. The darker a book's subject matter, the more likely it is to be labeled important or vital. When this comes from a writer who is sharing a key part of their own experience, it can very well be such things. As much as I found very little to like in David Cheriandri's Brother, a book that ticks all of the boxes I've been throwing into the metaphorical dumpster 10,000 feet below the window of my studio, his book at least has the merit of being written to the particular experience he has, that of growing up a Haitian immigrant in Toronto, Canada. How much more frustrating than to have his book being lifted up next to something like Annie Prue's, a writer who has never played accordion in her ding dang life. This is not hard, folks. Just because a book has dark content doesn't mean it's good or worthy. As a dear friend of mine said when I described Suicide Blonde's Orphean descent into the sleazy underbelly of San Francisco, yeah, that sounds like the kind of book I would have read in high school and thought was super deep. When she said that, I found myself doing a full-body shudder, Chuck Palahniuk's entire oeuvre rushing through my head. In retrospect, I do think Chuck's work has some merit, especially Fight Club, for how it parodies people like my younger self, who loved it for all the wrong reasons because it was gritty and dark and talked about sex and and gross stuff. 
I, I need more coffee. Some fiction. This is a new segment I'm going to be trying out this week. This will be something that hopefully will come back to the podcast every once in a while because I do write prose fiction. I'm in the middle of NaNoWriMo, which is the National Novel Writing Month challenge. Uh, you can check out NaNoWriMo.com if you're interested in joining in on that. And uh, I wrote this little passage the other day as kind of an introduction to a larger concept that I'm exploring in the book I'm writing. And I just kind of enjoyed it. And even though this is very much a work in progress and a first draft, I thought I would read it to you folks and hopefully you enjoy it too. How do you find your way back to something that was good? Perhaps, looking back over your life, aided by the nostalgia that glosses all memory, you can think of a time when everything was good, when things made sense, and you felt at peace, when you were surrounded by love. Does this moment call to you? Do you wish to find your way back to it? There are some kinds of nostalgia one can enter. A book remains the same, the printed words upon its pages forever set in their order, always beckoning to a familiar story. And yet, even books are never the same, for we always carry our own lives into the books we read, into each imagined world the prejudices and caprices of our waking minds wander, held in the hands we seek to set free. How much harder then is it to find the way back to an abandoned home, a forgotten hobby, a lost love? Do we hold ourselves back, worried that the love we once felt in these places of comfort will no longer await us? Or does some force beyond our ken conspire to pervert our joy? Is the quest for one moment of perfect and pure happiness always destined to be thwarted by a cold and uncaring universe? At some point, every single person will die. A well-known fact to be sure, but nonetheless, a potent one. In the instant before the spark of life leaves your body forever, you will look back along your life as though down a corridor filled with alcoves, each containing a memory. Some will be dim and dusty, each containing a half-forgotten recollection. Other alcoves will be blazing with the light of a thousand candles, glorious miniature temples to happy nostalgia. These alcoves are your favorite memories, the ones you revisit often, the ones you love. Among these most favorite of little altars to your past, there will be one, the greatest and most beautiful. Instead of a simple niche in the wall of the corridor, this one is a gilt door, carved of golden wood that feels warm to your touch. Can you see the door? What lies behind it is for you to know and for me to forever guess at. You know what lies behind that door. Like the back of your own hand, you know it. You know it like the face of a lover, of your mother. To you, whatever is behind that door is a window into heaven. All of your deepest held loves and joys lie behind that door. If you are young enough, or hopeful enough, you doubtless think that one day another door will replace this one. You can almost imagine this grander door, inlaid with silver and set with precious stones. Behind this hoped-for door is something grander than you almost dared dream you could possess. A great love, a singular event, a true inspiration. 
At the moment of your death, you will know which alcove contains the door to your heart. Perhaps you have already made the door, filled it with the memory of your heart's triumph, and that is that. Perhaps you hope that one day you will create this door. If you spend your whole life hoping for the door, you will never learn to value the door you already have, destined to die disappointed. Somewhere, far back along that hallway, is another door. This portal is not set in one of the alcoves, but in the floor of the corridor. Though this trapdoor is sealed shut, bound with chains, locked, and weighted with heavy stones, it still bounces with impacts from below. It has broken open before. You know it will break open again. This is the door you hope to never open again. In the darkest part of the night, when sleep evades you, you hear whispering from behind the door. Threats and promises. If only you will just open it. Only you know what awaits you behind that door. Only you keep bringing the buckets of slops or the trays of mincemeats to the thing below that door. Perhaps, on the last day of your life, you will decide to leave the door closed, walk out through your favorite alcove and into happiness. Or, will you break the chains, roll away the stones, unlock the door, and climb down into the dark with the thing in the cellar? Only you can know for sure. But I digress. Let us think of the cellar no more. Though, I know you will. Let us turn our attention back to that most happy and charming of alcoves, the one that contains a first kiss, a song among friends, the feeling of the down on a day's old chicken. Can you recover that feeling? Can you return to that thing that, even if only for an instant, made you purely and truly happy? Please tell me if you know how. Song of the Week. This is a song from Newfoundland. I seem to like the Newfie tunes. It's called Eyes the By. I first heard this song when I was oof, probably nine or ten. I went to a choral concert at the local high school. It was just kind of one of those vaguely cultural things that my mom was always bringing us to. And the, there was a, a young men's choir and they sang this song and got really into it and did a little bit of dancing and a lot of like uh, sort of swaying tavern style pumping of fists and stuff like that and I was just enamored with it I was singing it for weeks and I learned a version of this song when I was in school orchestra a few years after that but uh, it was really fun to discover this song in the Lomax book the folk songs of North America so without further ado here is Eyes the by. Well, eyes the by that builds the boat, and eyes the by that sails her, eyes the by that catches the fish and brings them home to Lizer. Hip your partner Sally Tipple, hip your partner Sally Brown, Fogel Twilling Gate, Morton's Harbor, all the circle round. Well, 
tried to glide her to the dance and faith that she could travel and every step that she would take was up to her knees in gravel. Hip your partner Sally Tipple, hip your partner Sally Brown, Fogel, Twillin, Gate, Morton's Harbor, all around the round. Salts and rinds to cover your flake, cake and tea for supper, codfish in the spring of year, fried in maggoty butter. Hip your partner Sally Tipple, hip your partner Sally Brown, Fogel, Twillin, Gate, Morton's Harbor, all around, around. Susan White, she's out of sight. Her petticoat wants a border. Old Sam Oliver in the dark, he kissed her in the corner. Hip your partner, Sally Tipple. Hip your partner, Sally Brown. Fogel to Lingate Morton's Harbor, all around, around. Your partner Sally Tipple, hip your partner Sally Brown, Fogel Twilling Gate Martin's Harbor, all around around. Fogel Twilling Gate Martin's Harbor, all around around. Fogel Twilling Gate Martin's Harbor, all around around. Mailbag. Do you have a piece of heirloom taxidermy, a cursed Ouija board, or perhaps an old book that has pressed flowers between the pages and you just don't know what to do with it? Why not send that stuff to me? Strangely, at 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225, number 21. That does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. It's absolutely a pleasure to keep getting to make this artwork for you folks and i hope you enjoyed the new experimental bit of fiction i will hopefully be including little bits from my nanowrimo for the rest of the month and at some point i'll probably do an audiobook of another novel i i did postmancier a while ago you can find that on strangelyandfriends.com and yeah i i hope you folks out there are enjoying this stuff if you aren't enjoying this stuff, please write me a letter and tell me why. I'd love to hear from the haters. If anybody's hate listening to this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of my amazing patrons out there on Patreon. It's patreon.com strangely if you want to get in on that. But to all of you folks who are already in on that, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. It means the world to me that every month this podcast is able to pay its own bills and... I also get to eat. I hope you all have a great week. See you next time. Instead of a joke, can I tell you a weird anatomical fact about an animal? Yes. Okay. So, opossums. Mm -hmm. They have 13 nipples, and they're arranged in a circle of 12 with the 13th in the middle. And male opossums have bifurcated penises. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.